Joseph, I literally have known uh, them their whole lives, uh, Joseph and Jordan, and we grew up, there was one house uh, in between us, and I don't know if many of you all know Carl. Carl, he played uh, linebacker in, in college, and so his whole family looks a little different than my family. Uh, so when our kids are really, really small, uh, my daughter Carissa was looking at Carl and uh, his oldest daughter, Lauren, and she was so young, she couldn't even pronounce her name. So she looked up at us and said, uh, Lauren has a big daddy. It had a little daddy. <laughs> so, uh, little daddy. Um, but I'm so thankful to be here with you all. I consider this a, a great honor to come and to share with you all from the Word of God. I love what the Master's University is doing. It took me a minute to say Master's University. I have to confess that one of the reasons why I came, because I have all these Master's College t-shirts, and when I speak, they give me these cool Master University sweatshirts. I'm like, I got to get a Master's University one. So I told Adam, yeah, yeah pin me and I'll be there. Uh, <clears throat> but what I want to do with the time I have tonight is I, I want us to think through just what are you going to do with your life? And I know you hear messages like this from time to time. Uh, you know, I, I, I think back to my years when I was in college, and, and, and I, I was learning a lot of things as, as life is confusing, trying to find your path in life and your place and how to use your giftedness. But one of the things that God really blessed me with when I was a student at UCLA is how, what to live my life for. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ paid a, paid a tremendous price for the church with his own blood. He paid a tremendous price for you. And, and, and as the Lord of all the universe who paid this price for us, we have to continue to ask ourselves, am I living my life according to the purpose that Jesus died for me to have? When I woke up this morning, or when you woke up this morning, did you ask yourself, Lord Jesus, why did you give me this new day? What, what do you want from me today? What are you requiring of me today? What can I do that will please you? Lord Jesus, that you gave me life. You, I was a living zombie, dead, spiritually dead, separated from God. And you came from glory and you hung on the cross so that I could have life and know you. What am I doing with that life that pleases you? Is there, is there something that you would have me doing in five years, and ten years? Am I, am I focused on what you've called me to live my life for? In the text that I want us to look at this morning, I, I think it gives us that, that clear calling that Jesus has upon all of our lives. It's in Matthew chapter 28. It is a meeting, so I'm going to go through this text as if it is a meeting and look at the minutes from the meeting, maybe five minutes from this meeting. But let me read this text to you. We call it the Great Commission so, so, because it's so grand in its scope and its majesty. And what it says is this. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we just heard the word of God, saints. Will you bow with me as I pray? Father, thank you for the privilege that you've given us to represent you into this fallen world. Thank you for your means of grace that you've given us to be faithful. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who fills us and illumines our minds so that your word, Lord, is, is real to us and you are real to us and our calling is real. And I pray that you bless us, Lord, with um, a clear understanding of this passage and the motivation and enablement to be faithful to it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Um, in verse 11, in verse 16, it says at the end of that verse that Jesus had designated this meeting. The eleven proceeded to Galilee and to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And, and when you look at the word designated, it simply means that this is a scheduled meeting. If you're taking notes, this is a scheduled meeting. That Jesus here schedules this meeting, this post-resurrection meeting with the disciples. And some would say that the eleven only are here so that this is a charge or this is a command or this is a call to the leadership of the church in some ways, just to the apostles. And so that, that, that would give many of us an excuse to read this passage and say, well, I'm, I'm really not called a leader in my church, and so this doesn't directly relate to me. But I think if we look carefully at the immediate context and the far context, I think we'll see that all the disciples here are under this charge that Jesus now gives. In verse 7, for instance, it says, Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I have told you so. So here this charge is given to the women, and it says in verse 9, Then Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. And here expands the word, not just uh, disciple, but brethren, which could be more general that would include the other disciples. But I think definitively, when you look at Luke's gospel, and Luke's gospel gives a version of the commission, in chapter 24, verse 9, it says, And they returned from the tomb and reported all these to the eleven and to all the rest. To, to the eleven and all the rest, so that these post-resurrection and these meetings that Jesus was having, these encounters, as they were being disseminated, they were disseminated to all the disciples. So not just the eleven. The eleven are spoken representatively of in Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. But there was a meeting according to 1 Corinthians 15, 6, a post-resurrection meeting where Jesus met with 500 disciples. And I would argue that is this very meeting that this word got out that Jesus had designated a place, designated a time, and word got out to all the disciples to come up to, to, to meet Jesus in Galilee, and all 500 disciples are there hearing this charge. And not just the 500 disciples are here placed under this charge and command of Jesus. When you continue to read in verse 20, Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. And the age hasn't ended yet. So all the disciples of Christ are underneath the charge that he has commanded here. What Jesus has commanded, he wants all of his disciples in all places until he returns to be fulfilling this great 
commission that he has given. And the meeting hasn't ended, the age hasn't ended, so this is really directed towards us as well. That all of us are included in this charge that Jesus is giving at this scheduled meeting. We're glad they recorded the meeting so we can go back and read it and see what our king has called us to do. The second part of the minutes here records in verse 17 what I'm going to call a really surprise response. In verse 17 it says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. I just love the honesty of the Bible. You you almost have to mentally picture the scene. So all these 500 disciples are gathering together at this designated mountain in Galilee. And as they've gathered together, Jesus appears. And when he appears, it says that some of them worship. They literally prostrated themselves and bowed down, face to the ground, before Jesus. That's an appropriate response to the risen Lord. But then it says some others... They doubted. Some translators say that they hesitated, and that that would kind of get you out of the tension a little bit. But the problem is the word doesn't mean hesitated. They really doubted. And, 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 and And when we read back through the rest of the gospel accounts, we shouldn't be shocked by this. We have a, a phrase for one of the apostles. We call him Doubting Thomas. It was just inconceivable for, for him to believe that the Jesus who was crucified had really risen from the dead, and he didn't believe it until he saw and then touched them. And so here these disciples are gathering together. Many of them are meeting Jesus for the first post-resurrection time. And as they're gathering together, they're in, they're, they're in wonderment, like, is this really Jesus? And, and if you're sitting all the way in the back, and if you have contacts, if you took off your contacts or glasses, you may not know who I was up front. Definitely if I took mine off, I couldn't see. And here in this crowd of 500, those in the back didn't have a really clear vision of Jesus. They didn't have contacts. They didn't have laser eye surgery back then. They didn't have, like, glasses. So they would have had trouble seeing Jesus. And the text tells us in verse 18 what Jesus did, responding to their doubt, it says that he came up. Jesus came up to them and revealed himself to them as indeed the, the one whom they knew and walked with and the one whom, who had healed them and and the one whom, whom they had seen crucified. It was this Jesus. And, and worshiping him was the absolute appropriate response. Just as when Dowling Thomas saw Jesus, he cried out, my Lord and, and my God. And as you read through the rest of the New Testament, from this point forward, the disciples call him Lord. And, and they mean Lord in the sense of Yahweh of the Old Testament, that he is God, very God. He is the, the perfect God-man. And they, they, they worshiped him, the risen Lord. And there's a third part of the, these minutes that are recorded for us. Not only a, a, a surprising reaction to Jesus, but, but also the text tells us in verse 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth are mine. And let me just call that just kind of a stunning credentials that Jesus gives of, he gives of himself. All authority in heaven and earth are mine. And, and, and if you look at the text, and the emphasis here is, is on the all, that all authority, not, not just authority in earth or authority in heaven, but he has all authority in heaven and earth. And that simply means that he is in charge over every realm, over every place, in every dominion, that he is that he is in charge, that he is the Lord, he is the, 
the sovereign Lord. In some other simple terms, you could just say it means that there really is a new sheriff in town. That, that Satan had done something when he usurped Adam's authority in the garden and became an illegitimate ruler. Jesus even calls him the God of the earth. But Jesus' death and resurrection, he exalts his authority over Satan and does what God intended for man to be able to do right from the beginning. God charged Adam and Eve to rule and subdue creation. But Adam, instead of ruling, he was subdued and they became an illegitimate ruler over creation. Now Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is exalted and there's an illegitimate authority now through Christ reigning over the entire earth. So all authority in heaven and earth is his. Um, and let me, let me settle and, and take a minute and focus on these, the next two parts of the minutes that Jesus gives not only his stunning credentials, but in verse 19, he, he gives us um, just the, 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 the simple nature, the straightforward nature of the commission when he says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And the simple, straightforward nature of the commission that this really is a command. That Jesus is commanding all of his disciples to go and to make disciples. The make disciples is definitely a command, and going here for you grammarians is a participle. And some would say, well, it's explaining how we make disciples. We, we make disciples as we are going, but because it appears before the main verb, it takes the very force of the verb itself. It is a command. It means go. And you can pull out your lexicon and look up go. You can look it up in Greek, Aramaic, Hebrew. And go means go, not stay. That, that we are called to go so that all believers are called to go. Maybe not overseas, but all of us are called to go. That when a new neighbor moves in town or on your block, you're commanded to go. Go across the street and they don't have a lawnmower yet or they don't have a gardener. So pull out a lawnmower and, and cut their grass. So some new person moves into your apartment to take the initiative and, and go to them, bake some cookies or do something and, and, and go to them. Sometimes we do events at our church and expect unbelievers just to come to us. But here the command is very clear. We're commanded to go and to go to them and to make disciples. Um, there's a story that's told of uh, a young Coast Guard uh, officer, and, and there was this huge storm on the coast, uh, greater than any storm they had in, 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 in decades. And there was this cry out from a distress signal from the ship on the sea that they needed help. And so the captain calls the unit together and is telling them that we've got to go out. And over the raging of the sea and the roaring of the wind, uh, this, this young Coast Guard officer said, Captain, we can't go out. We may never make it back. And the captain said, no, we have to go out. We don't have to come back. And here what Jesus is commanding all of us is that we all have to go. That he is commanding us to go and to make disciples. I consider myself a very reluctant missionary. My oldest daughter wants to be a missionary in Haiti. My middle daughter wants to be a missionary in Japan. I, I consider myself a very reluctant missionary. And if you ask me why, it's because I'm scared. I just don't, I mean, just this bodybuilding. I grew up in really tough neighborhoods. I grew up in Newark, New Jersey, in the neediest city in the nation at the time. I carried a knife the size of my calf when I, before I was 10 years old. I'd, 
I didn't have a Napoleon complex. I would fight everybody I could. I just had gotten all these fights when I was really young. And then when I left seminary, I went and passed it right in the middle of South Central, right where the L.A. riots started. And from there, I went and I passed it in Watts for 12 years. Uh, but I just a very reluctant missionary. I would get opportunities to go, and I'm like, yeah, I don't know if I want to just go over there. And, uh, but finally, I finally responded, and I went to Zimbabwe with Children's Hunger Fund. And I'm in Zimbabwe, and we brought a lot of cash with us, not because we weren't sure if the pastors could pay for the conference. They were supposed to pay for half, and so we brought a lot of cash. I think, I forgot how much cash. It could have been $20,000 we're carrying around, so I'd have a big wad, and, uh, and the kid had a big wad. So we, kept, we all split all this money. We had all this money in our backpacks. And the last day we were leaving, and a cop pulled us over, and we had like about twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 of cash in one of the backpacks. And then he's arguing with, because what these cops, they, uh, there's a lot of corruption there in Zimbabwe, and they would just pull you over and, and make up some fine and some fee and charge you, and they confiscate your stuff, and you'd be, in, you know, so anyway, so, so he's going through this whole thing. He's making up this charge against us and all this, and he said, I have to search the car. I searched the car. And he opens up the trunk. He's about to go through the backpacks. And I'm like, Lord, that's why I didn't want to come to Zimbabwe. <laughs> I told you I don't want to be a missionary. I'm going to be in jail in Zimbabwe somewhere. So he's going through the backpacks, and there's no, like, secret pouch in this thing with the $20,000 or so. It's just a flap. And, you know, he didn't see the money. He went through all of our backpacks and didn't see the money. And God was just encouraging me that, Bobby, when I send you, whatever God calls us to do, he gives us his grace to do it. And he will protect us. And here he's commanding us to go. And sometimes I think we feel like it's a personality thing. I have to be an extrovert or I have to be, you know, a people, a real friendly people type person. No, you don't. You just have to be obedient. Jesus commands us to go and to make disciples. And it is this, it's just really straightforward that all disciples are commanded, not just a select few. We all are commanded to go and to make disciples. And then, and then if I can finish by, by looking at verses 19 and 20, and just give the simple strategy that Jesus articulates in this meeting. It's a really simple strategy. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And a simple strategy is this, like, all disciples have to make disciples. And, and, and what is it to, to make a disciple? Uh, to make a disciple, it isn't necessarily calling someone to walk down an aisle. It's not calling someone to pray a prayer that you prayed. To make a disciple doesn't even begin with us. It begins with what Jesus has done. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He didn't come to try to save people. He didn't come hoping he could save people. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And on the cross, he said that it is finished, the debt has been paid. And so what we go out to do, we're proclaiming a gospel that is effectual. It will save sinners. It really will. And here when it says baptizing them, that, that, is, is, it, that is representative of the whole evangelistic endeavor, that we go and we proclaim the gospel to people. And as, they, as God saves, they're identified with him. They're now his. 
Baptism simply symbolizes what happens in reality when we preach the gospel and God saves sinners, when they repent and they believe, they turn from their sin, that he saves them. You know, I have my notes up here, a little white piece of paper. And if I were to baptize this paper, and it simply means to immerse, if I were to immerse it into blue dye, baptize it into blue dye, and when I pull it back up, it wouldn't be white anymore. It would be completely dominated by the dye that I immersed it into. It would be blue. And here what Jesus is saying that when we preach the gospel and he saves a sinner, we're to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to, to physically represent spiritually that they're no longer their own, that they're now God's, the, the God who adopted them, the Holy Spirit who seals them, Jesus who paid his blood for them and, and redeemed them, that we are now his we are the triune gods, that, that we, are, we are his own possession, that he saved us. And when we're making disciples, we preach the gospel, and God saves them and makes sinners his. I don't know all of your stories, but if you're saved, I know that it changed. When you met Jesus in a saving way, when you repented of your sins by his grace to trust in him, your life changed. I had competed as a bodybuilder for uh, since, since Joseph brought it up, I competed as a bodybuilder since I was 16 through all my teenage years. And, and then the Lord saved me. And when he saved me, I, I, I didn't know what quite to do. So I kept doing for a while what I was doing. And so I, I got in the next bodybuilding competition. I went on stage and I'm like, uh, I think I need a little bit more clothes. This isn't really like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, this is awkward. Now I competed for years and never thought that for one second. But I was different. Inside out, he had changed me. And he began to set me free from all those things that had ensnared me and that I loved. But why did he set me free? Why did he set you free? Why, did he, why was the Son of God hanging on the cross? Why did the Holy One of God take on our sins? Why did the one who has this intimate, loving relationship with God throughout all of eternity now stand in a place where he was drinking the wrath of God, every single drop of it? Why was Jesus doing that? Well, to glorify his Father, but to redeem a people who would go into this world and make disciples. To go into this world that he created that was an absolute rebellion to him. And by his grace and by his love, to bring this world back underneath his authority, that it might surrender to him. A disciple is simply this. It's someone who's not rebelling against Jesus anymore. It's someone who's, whose every aspect of their life is being brought underneath the authority of Jesus Christ. Their thoughts, their speech, their attitudes, what they wear or don't wear, what they, what they do, that, that Jesus is now bringing this rebellious world back underneath this authority, and he's doing it through his amazing grace, through his amazing love that he extends forth through us as we proclaim the gospel. But, but, but one way or another, that God is going to bring his rebellious world back underneath his authority, because those who don't bow now by his grace, they'll bow and by his grace and his cross, they'll bow when he comes back in his wrath of the sword. Be because Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, and he's going to subdue the world in his righteousness. And we go forth and proclaim the people that, that, that Jesus has come, that Jesus has died, that Jesus rose, that Jesus is the Lord, and he extends to you 
the offer for pardon for all of your sins. And he commands you to turn from your sins and trust in him. And those who are being saved by God's grace will do that. And so we're commanded to make disciples. And when we do it initially through the preaching of the gospel, and when people are saved, it is a progressive process. Discipleship doesn't stop when they're saved. It continues throughout the rest of their life. It says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And so when someone gets saved, now what they need to do, they need to know Jesus' ways so they can follow his ways. There's an old black preacher used to say that you can no more go or come back from where you ain't never been to do what you've never heard. That, that we have to teach people how to follow Christ. And all of us collectively have that responsibility. So the person beside you, yes, you are your brother's keeper. That, that we have to encourage each other, keep helping each other to move towards Christ's likeness. That we have to do it, whatever our ministries are in the church, I could be in the choir, I could be in a children's ministry, I could be an administrator. That's not your primary ministry anymore. Your primary ministry is to help the person beside you to move towards Christ's likeness. So we keep moving people towards Christ's likeness in our prayers through our encouragement, and it's a collective responsibility. I don't know all of you, and I don't know your lives, and I don't know you intimately, but, but someone in here knows you, and, and those of us who know each other and know our lives, we've got to get into each other's business and stop asking superficial questions. We've got to ask, how are you doing? What are you doing with your eyes? What are you looking at on the Internet? What, relationship, what is your relationship like? I used to tell the single guys when I was at, in college, follow me as I follow Christ. And we would follow each other so that we were guarding our purity, guarding our relationships, because we had a collective responsibility to move each other towards Christ's likeness. Why is that? Because that's Jesus' simple strategy. He's going to change the world by changing it a heart at a time through ordinary people that he's given extraordinary grace to. That he has marvelously blessed and equipped each and every one of us, to be able to make disciples. And the question we have to ask ourselves, what in the world are we doing? I can look at the news and I can complain about all kinds of things. I've always lived in the urban context. I can complain about that. But what in the world am I doing? That Jesus here is changing the world, not with an army. He's changing the world, not through political strategies, He's changing the world not through educational systems and not through monetary economic strategies. He wants to change the world through you. He wants to change the world through his church. He takes the weak things and he's manifesting his power through us so that he gets all the glory. And his power is efficacious to save and to change. The question is, are we being faithful? A day is coming where we're all going to stand before him at the beam of seat judgment. And some of us will have wood, stubble, and hay, and thank God it's all, all going to burn. That we won't bring before the king that which is not worthy of him. But, but I pray that all of us will have a heart designed what the apostle Paul desired. To hear on that day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That Jesus saved you and you have a dual citizenship. If I can quote Al Mohler, that we have a heavenly citizenship which is paramount, and we have, a, we have a missiological citizenship relationship to the world, and they're not of equal weight and equal value. 
that Jesus has left us in the world to make disciples. Make no mistake about that. That's all the text says. It's very straightforward. It's very simple. It's a simple strategy. He wants to change the world by changing people who will go out and share the message that will change other people. And he wants to live our lives for that, teaching them to observe all that I commanded, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And I love it in this text, if you take the first part of it and connect it to the last part, it says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he says, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The one who has all authority in every circumstance that you will find yourself in, he promises to be with you in every single circumstance that you will find yourself in. So there really are no excuses for any of us not to be faithful in making disciples. He is always with us always enabling us, always empowering us to be faithful disciple-makers. And the, the issue is we just have to be convinced that that's my primary calling. You know, when I was at UCLA, uh, there was a, a, a friend of mine, a close friend of mine, who started a Bible study on campus, Grace on Campus at UCLA. And he grabbed two other buddies, and they met in the middle of campus, and they just prayed for the campus. Three guys met in the middle of campus, prayed for the campus. Eventually that group grew to seven. First girl showed up, and then they got a little room in a student union, and they uh, started having Bible studies. And I think that's when I came there, about 20 of us. And we were just trying to reach the campus. I, I was studying kinesiology. I wanted to be a strength coach, and uh, I had all these priorities in my life. But there was a greater priority. The greater priority was to make disciples. God had left us here at UCLA, so we had to go. We had to go and make disciples in our classrooms. We had to make disciples, and Campus Crusade had a ministry there, and they had uh, eight full-time workers on the campus, and it was just us. We were like, you know, 20 of us, and we had no staff, anything like that, and, and by God's grace, we became the largest group on campus, and it was because we were faithfully working through a local church, uh, we weren't just a group of like 20-year-olds trying to figure this out. We had elders, and we could bring students here. John MacArthur preached, and Chris Mueller preached at the time, and Scarlett Advance preached. So we had elders, and we had the full dynamic of a body life. We were connecting students from the campus into a church where they could be fed and where they, they could mature as disciples. And as they matured as disciples, they would go back to campus and make other disciples. And so we became the largest Christian group on campus. And 30 years later, I'm stunned about this. It's the largest student group on campus, period. Why? Because my friend Rocky had a vision that, hey, what Matthew 28 says applies to us and right now. We all thought we were too busy. It did, it did affect my GPA a little bit. We all thought we were too busy. Like, I can't be, like, evangelizing and meeting with people in small groups. I don't have time for all of that. But I'm so glad that when I was 20 years old that there was someone who had a vision to buy faith Believe what Jesus says, that Jesus can take us and use us to make disciples. And this is the greatest seek and search and rescue mission ever given to man or to angel. And we have the privilege of being on the front lines of it. Why waste your life and squander your life doing anything else? What greater calling is there for you in your life than to go and to be used by the king to snatch people out of the kingdom of darkness so that by God's grace they translate under the kingdom of God's Son and live for his glory forever and ever. And so here the Great Commission, uh, kind of uh, 
it, you have this scheduled meeting, this, this surprising responses, the stunning credentials of Jesus as he gives, that he has all authority, the straightforward command to go make disciples. And then you have in, in these last verse, just a simple strategy that go and make disciples. And let me say this by way of conclusion. What did the early church do with this? Uh, unskilled, uneducated men, what did they do with this? Acts 5 said they turned the world upside down. They, 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 they just went out and did this. They needed nudging. Acts chapter 8, they all gathered together in the homogenous cultural groups, and God had to send persecution for them to go out to the Samaritans. But they went out, house to house, door to door, and they were making disciples. And so the way that the early church did this is by being a part of a local church, that they were committed to these local churches, and God sent out the best of the best to go overseas uh, in order for us to, look with me in Acts chapter 1, in order for us to fulfill this great commission, Jesus wants, to, wants us to make disciples of all the nations, and we have to cross a lot of barriers. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, it tells us Jesus will give us the power to do that, but what he's empowering us to do is to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. To do that, you've got to cross cultural barriers, You've got to cross fear barriers. You've got to cross language barriers. You've got to cross all these barriers. And God sent out the apostle Paul, and he sent out his, his, some of his best and most gifted leaders to, to cross a lot of these barriers. And so God may not be sending you. You may not have the, the leadership or the language skills or the cultural diversity to go to some places across seas. But he's sending you somewhere, and you want to be faithful there. The early church in Acts chapter 14, they just, they gathered together in these local churches, and in these local churches, they infiltrated their community. And then the apostle Paul would go and plant another church somewhere else, and they would infiltrate their little community. We would, you know, the, the, they would get into the, the, all, the, the, all the relationships, they would exhaust them in terms of just sharing the gospel, and that's what God intends for us to do, to be a part of a local church, reach out to people, God saves, when they get saved, plug them into the church. They will mature as disciples, and a sign of a mature disciple is they can go out and make disciples. So they'll go out, and they'll reach their friends and their neighbors and preach the gospel. Some of them will get saved, plug them in the church. They'll mature, and, and then you, they'll go out and share the gospel and, and their relationships. And you know what happened? We like to say that we're going out to the outermost parts of the world when we send people across seas. No, where are the outermost parts of the world? The gospel started in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Because the church was faithful, it reached the whole globe. Jesus' simple strategy works. We don't have to hope that politics change the world or some charismatic leader, you know, some right president changed the world. God wants to use you. And I, my, my encouragement to you is just to believe that, that God can use you. You know, I, I grew up, like I said, in the neediest part of the urban uh, part of our nation, and it just stuns me that God would use someone like me to make disciples and to mature disciples. But, but God is not limited in what he can do. The question is, do we have faith to believe that? The world needs you right now. Uh, it, it's, it's a critical hour. I almost want to apologize for everybody my age and up what a mess we've made of the world for you. But the darker it gets, the lighter your, brighter your light will shine. Um, be courageous. Uh, go wherever God is sending you. And, and be faithful and be a light and be a witness. Uh, I, I, I would love to hear, like I go back and hear about this UCLA group, this 
300 strong and sending people out all over the world, the missionaries and pastors. It's stunning to me to look back over the 30 years what God has done to that little group because my friend Rocky had a vision to make disciples. I just wonder what God would do with some of you all. If you stand up and really believe, uh, he is powerful to save. And he hasn't made a mistake. There is no plan B. You're it. He, He wants to use you to make a difference. And God has brought you here and equipped you all here for a reason and for a purpose for you all to make disciples for the Lord Jesus Christ. Be faithful. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you for the, just the privilege that you've given us, Lord Jesus, to go forth into the world and to represent you and make disciples. Grant us courage. Grant us grace. Help us to be faithful and bless, Lord, our ministry for your namesake and for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.